Welcome to episode three of the Call Me Sassy Pants. Um, that's my working title for right now, not working title, but um, that's what I'm calling this podcast until I change my mind again. Um, I wanted to finish up a point from my last uh, last podcast, episode two. One thing I want to say, first off, is that... Um, you're going to have to forgive me sometimes if I space on a word or if I say things not exactly right sometimes. When you have CFS, you get brain fog, and sometimes I may lose my train of thought. I may um, just not be able to find a word, and that's just brain fatigue. So that's that. Um, and I notice how tired my voice sounds um, in, in these recordings, but uh, you know, hopefully that will get better with time and maybe I shouldn't do these, um, in the morning because it kind of takes all day for, you know, um, cortisol to build up to normal levels and people with CFS. And this isn't going to be all about CFS, but I just wanted to clear that up. And I wanted to finish the last point when I completely spaced, when I was talking about transcendental meditation, um, A bunch of transcendental meditators went down to Washington, D.C. in the summertime when crime is high, and they meditated for three weeks. And transcendental meditation is traditionally 20 minutes twice a day. And during those three weeks, uh, crime in D.C. went down 17%, and they couldn't explain why. And the meditators that went down, I think it was a couple thousand people, um you know, explain it by the scientific, I guess it's scientific name of coherence. And coherence is, um, I'm not going to explain coherence right now. Um, (laughs) Coherence is when everything's cohesive. Um, Coherence is like when you take a bunch of grandfather clocks and you put them all in one room and then they all start ticking and talking at the same time, that's coherence. Um, so I'm too tired right now to come up with anything better than that. But it, it, the world all starts to work together at the same um, time and speed and level of calmness. And that's what those meditators did um, with their meditation in DC at that time. So I thought that was fascinating. I don't remember what the point I was trying to make, but I just wanted to at least finish that story. So things have been getting a little heavy on this podcast. Didn't want to start out quite so heavy. So I thought I'd lighten it up with the subject of, are we too hard on rapists? Hey, little lighter fare for everybody. Um, but um, it was kind of on my mind, so I thought I would just jet that out um, because <clears throat> the more something's kind of rolling around in my head, the more I'm like, I either need to like write a little, uh, article about it, or I need to like, just get it out of my head. So, um, I happened to watch the documentary, um, directed by documentarian Josh Sabi or Sabi. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, an American tragedy was, um, a documentary, uh, a, on, uh, the mother of one of the Columbine shooters. And it was actually a really fascinating documentary. Very sad, but 
uh, interesting, you know, in the sense of this woman's life and what she has been through as the mother of one of those two sons. So I happened to be Googling him afterwards and I found, you know, someone on Twitter had said, um, uh, oh, well, don't forget Josh Stabey wrote this article. And so I looked up this article he had written a few years ago and he wrote this article that basically said, are, are we weird too? It was either a question or a statement. I can't remember, but that we're too hard on rapists. We're too hard on criminals in general. And I was very disturbed and upset even by this notion, especially as a female and somebody, you know, uh, throwing rapists out there in such kind of a cavalier way. And I, you know, read the article and he made some very interesting points in a sociological way. And it kind of made me think. And basically the article is about how, you know, Back in the day, you know, even Puritans, um, if if someone in the community um, committed a crime, Puritans would go and visit that person in jail. They would bring them food. They would bring them blankets. <clears throat> they would bring them uh, compassion and, and guidance. And they would feel responsible as a community for the error that was made. So... The article goes on um, to talk about how, um, you know, when there is a bunch of people going out to drink and there's a designated driver, people tend to drink more. Um, obviously, the people that aren't driving. Um, and that, you know, when when we punish people really harshly, that kind of gives us license to act more crazy, if you will, um, more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it, it gives us kind of a license to, to be worse in our behavior because we've now, you know, made somebody else the projection of all things that are evil. And so we're good and they're bad. And now that they're paying the price for all of us, we can do whatever we want. And I thought that was a really interesting viewpoint because if we all took responsibility for each other, we would probably all behave very differently. And it seems to me, at least in the United States or in America, that we, being the same country, um, I don't know why I said that, <laughs> um, that, um, that people pretty much just take responsibility for their children's behavior, and that's it. They don't take responsibility for their spouse's behavior, although they may be embarrassed by that, or their family, or other relatives, but they don't really feel responsible for anything other than their children. And even then, there's so such a lack of feeling responsible for your children's behavior anymore compared to when I was a kid. When I was a kid, any adult could yell at you. Um, you had a lot more freedom as a kid. You could, you know, just 
be home as soon as it was it was dark. Um, you could go and, and play. Your parents didn't know where you were most of the time. You could ride your bike around. People weren't afraid of pedophiles, even though they were everywhere. Um, you know, it was it was a, a different time. There was no such thing as helicopter parenting. You were, were really expected to... I rode my bike for miles. I walked to school from five years old till I had to take the bus. Um, and, you know, you were allowed a lot of freedom. And, you know, kids today don't have that, which I think is, is good and bad. But um, I'm digressing again. Um, to get back to um, my point, um, I just wonder if we were to take more responsibility than just our children's behavior for the parents that are even willing to even take that as a responsibility today. Um, how, what would that look like? Because in countries like Canada, I believe it's Canada, don't quote me, they have prisons where you can just walk out. They have libraries. It's very comfortable. You have a very nice, humane stay. It's nothing like the prison, prison system in the United States of America. Um, they do not keep you in a cell for 23 hours with only one hour outside. Um, they, you, you basically live in kind of a adult camp kind of setting and you can leave anytime you want. I don't know what happens if you leave. You know, you come back and they say, well, Jeff, uh, I hate to break it to you, but now that you're back, you know, you're, you're not going to have chocolate pudding for the rest of your stay. Jeff's like, oh, I ruined it. I had it really good. Now I'm going to have to finish the next three years. No pudding. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how that all goes down. I don't, I don't know what it is, but basically what the prisoners do, or the inmates, is, is they're like, well, it's, it's so easy here. It's so nice here. Why should I bother leaving? Um, I might as well do my two and a half years, my five years, or even my seven years, because this is a very nice, comfortable place to stay, and then I'll just go back to my life. Um, and you know, I watched another documentary in Norway where they talk about the, the fact that 22 years is their maximum for any crime. You can murder, I guess, a lot of people. Um, and all you're going to get is 22 years. And they look at it like 22 years is a long time to be away from your family and your friends. And after that, they think you've served your time no matter what. There's no death penalty, nothing. So, and they're also, you know, very humane prisons. So it makes me curious because if, it, if I take it in the kind of microcosm and I look at the times when, you know, think about a time when you've made a mistake, you know, like you really messed up, you really did something bad and you hurt somebody's feelings or you, you know, you did something wrong and somebody really over punished you and they just beat it into the ground and they just wouldn't let it go. And the punishment was worse than the crime. And your reaction is not really to feel as remorseful as you would. 
it's to really feel kind of numb to what you did because you're being so overpunished to the point where you kind of shut down to the feelings of processing what you did and the responsibility of that and being responsible for making somebody else feel bad or harming someone else or their property or or something like that. You don't get a chance to go through all those feelings because somebody else is berating you or shaming you so badly um, that all you're feeling is probably anger and numbness and ostracization. I can't say that word right now. I'm not even going to try. Um, I gave it, I was going to give it a go, but not, not right now. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, imagine you've committed a really bad crime and, you know, you're not somebody who's very self-aware and you've had a really rough childhood and you've done a lot of bad things and you're not in control. You probably have some sort of mental illness. You're not really in control of, you know, the own trauma you've experienced in your life or the poverty and all of these, you know, bad things combined, which a lot of times leads to, um, lives of crime. You didn't have parents that cared about you or you didn't have a father. Um, which is a big thing for school shooters, which maybe I'll get to in a second. Um, a big component. Um, you know, you're probably going to not, you're going to start to go, what I did wasn't such a big deal. You're not going to feel as bad about it. But if people are kind to you and people treat you well, you're going to be more inclined to feel really badly about what you did and very much want to do your best to make it up to the community and the people around you who have shown you amazing amounts of kindness and generosity and compassion. And I found that anytime somebody has forgiven me and been so gracious with me when I have really done something wrong, the first thing that pops out of me is how bad I really truly feel and how grateful I am that that person has forgiven me. And when someone doesn't forgive me and really holds a grudge against me for something is when you start to go, well, who are they to not forgive me? And look at all the times they did this to me or they did that to me and I forgave them. And you start going down the list of things that you feel aren't fair and aren't right. And you don't really get to fully sit and feel the remorse for what you've done. Because you kind of can't, in a way, if someone isn't willing to allow you to be forgiven. So I thought the article was really fascinating. And I thought it seemed so foreign to me and so unsettling. You know, my first thought was I don't, you know, there, there's a couple different things in here because there's, there's how we treat prisoners. That's, that's a big issue, obviously, because we're so inhumane 
to the people that, you know, are supposed to be being rehabilitated, which in my opinion, they're not. Uh, They're just going in there to be treated like animals. Um, And it's such a big business now. People don't really want them um, to get out or be better or be rehabilitated. They're just uh, a product. They're a dollar sign. They're, you know, slave labor at this point. They actually, you know, um, create products and work for a certain amount of money making making products for companies like Pottery Barn and um, Williams-Sonoma while they're in prison. Like, it's insanity. Um, So I just wonder what that would be like. But I also have great issue with the... I think there should be longer sentences for rapists. I think that there should be more attention paid to um, evidence and how we store evidence and process evidence, um, you know, for for women who have been raped. Um, I have a friend who has an organization that she deals with, um, and there's just such a lag in, you know, like years behind in processing all these rape kits. And um, so, you know, that that's... That's a bit of a separate issue, and and I think um, that's something I feel very strongly about. And I, it's the kind of thing that I, I I think that if you know people saying, well, we may be too hard on people. I don't think people should be treated inhumanely when they're in jail. But I think if somebody knew that any rape you're going to get ten years, it doesn't have to be with a deadly weapon to get that length of time. I don't think a year and a half is a long enough time for a uh, rape without a deadly weapon. Um, you know, I think, I, I think, um, you know, if, if, for example, we treated rape as, as something that is as harmful as drinking and driving the way they do in Europe, for example, if you drink and drive in, you know, some European countries, you you lose your license for 10 years because they actually value human life. In the United States, we don't feel that way about drinking and driving. We're very lax on it. I don't understand it. It's kind of like as a society, we've decided that we're okay with a certain amount of deaths every year from drunk drivers. Um from people that they hit, from them killing themselves, and from the amount of people that die from alcohol-related illnesses and diseases and other just alcohol-related deaths. So we, as a group, have decided we're okay with that. And in Europe, they've said, we're not okay with that. If you get caught drinking and driving, you lose your license for 10 years, first time. None of this three times, and then you lose your license. And you get suspended. You get your license suspended after, I think, your second DUI. You'll get your license suspended for a year, maybe after your third, and then it you know, kind of varies state to state. Um, but we don't really value life as as it comes to drinking and driving, nor do we value women's 
well-being and safety when it comes to rapists so and sexual assault. So I know I'm bringing up some heavy issues um, on whatever day you're choosing to listen to this, but and there's kind of a lot to discuss and unpack here, but within all that, even though I think rape should be like automatic 10 years, you know, um, I, I, I don't, I don't really like the, you know, distinguishing factors like, well, there was no weapon. I, I, I just really don't think that makes a difference to the woman that was raped. You know, a man is enough thinking that he may kill you is, is, is enough. You know, a gun just kind of puts a nail in the coffin on that feeling or that moment or that incident. But, um, I could feel like, like the muscles in my stomach tensing, just, you know, thinking about something as horrific as that. Um, but I am open to kindness, charity, generosity, compassion, because I think that helps rehabilitate people into being better people when they come out. When I hear people saying, I hope this person rots in jail, I have a hard time with that because I just don't think you're just going to create more of a monster. And if that person gets out, what are they going to be like? And then that person can never vote again. Um, and I, that's another thing I don't understand. You know, it's like in other countries, they never take away their voting rights. You know, I don't, I don't understand why, you know, I'm pretty sure you can have been a felon and become president. Um, so I'm not sure why you never get, it's one thing if you don't, if you, you don't want to give people their voting rights while they're in jail, but once they've served their time and once they're taxpayers, if you're paying taxes, you should have the right to vote. I don't understand why anybody can say, you committed a felony, you know, but you have to pay taxes and you no longer have the right to vote. That, I, I would think that that's like unconstitutional. So these are the things that, well, they don't keep me up at night, but it just, I just don't know how anyone is getting away with this except that it sounds kind of like an old racist way of not allowing black people to vote because they were are the majority of people who are incarcerated. Call me crazy, but I just, it seems like anything that seems unfair goes back to an old law that was racist. And I just learned recently, you know, I worked freelance um, for many years, which is considered, you know, self-employment. And people who are self-employed can't get, you know, um, uh, can't get uh, benefit from any of the unemployment uh, that's being given now from the government, you know, during the pandemic. And that was largely due to the fact that a lot of uh, African-American workers were freelancers back in the day. I think, you know, doing uh, different jobs having to do with farming and whatnot. And so to make sure they didn't get unemployment, they said that those jobs weren't um, 
weren't, um, I'm so sorry, the word is escaping me, um, were not able to collect unemployment. Um, so it's just interesting if you really follow the trail of history um, that you can trace a lot of things that don't make sense, that don't seem fair, um, back to times when people in government wanted to make sure that things would be unequal or things would not be equal for certain groups of people. So, and there's a lot of people that may not agree with that, but the laws are there. And if you really, you know, look at a map and look at how the cities are redlined and the neighborhoods, that all goes back to the 1930s um, and the early 1900s. It's just, um, and those things still stand. Um, you know, I read an article that was fascinating about all of these different cities and how redlining in cities has, um, still affects people today. And in most cities, there's going to be a lot of freeways in between the rich white neighborhoods and the poor black neighborhoods. And in the poorer neighborhoods, they have less trees and where you have less trees, um, for every degree that the temperature goes up in the summer, you're, you have a 5% increase in strokes and heart attacks. All it has to do is be one, one degree hotter. And so when you have trees, when you're walking around outside and on the streets, it lowers the temperature by about five degrees. So now there's no place for the poor neighborhoods to have their kids play outside where it's cool. So you have to walk about a half hour to go to a a park or something that has, you know, shade. Um, And because poor neighborhoods don't have the voice and the money and the power, they don't have the ability to stop people from taking, you know, eminent domain um, opportunities and building freeways right next to their neighborhoods. So now they have higher rates of asthma and higher rates of other illnesses because they're breathing in exhaust all day long. And now they're cut off from better sources of food because they don't have really great grocery stores in their neighborhood. So they, you know, if you're, if you're poor in a, in a major city, you're not necessarily going to have a car. So you've got to take how many buses to get to a decent grocery store, um, which, and, and, you know, how, how many, how, how much, how many bags of groceries can you really carry back, you know, um, on a bus? So when people say things like, you know, systemic racism doesn't exist, it's like, well, you're not really looking for it and you have to really want to see it to believe it. And it's, it's everywhere. And if you were a person of color, you live it. But if you're not and you don't want to see it, then you just be you know, in denial of it saying, 
Well, they've been given this freedom. They have the right to vote. They're equal. No, they're not. It's, it's not an equal playing field. And, you know, 60 years of actual freedom of having the right to vote and build generational wealth is not, is not equal. It's not anywhere close to equal. So, but again, um, people kind of want to believe what they want to believe. But there's a lot of really fascinating, um, fascinating articles on on redlining and all of these um, simple things that certain neighborhoods go without, that rich neighborhoods go with, that make a huge impact on people's lives. And all of these things add up to make a huge difference in the health and well-being and financial um, abilities of one community versus another. So that is also another big, big topic, but it's kind of one of those things until you like really want to start looking and kind of researching and having an interest in it. You just, you just wouldn't really know. So I don't know. These things were just kind of on my mind today. And, um, I thought I would throw that food for thought out there and talking for a long time kind of gets, can give me a sore throat a little bit. So I'm going to wrap up. Um, I hope those heavy thoughts weren't a little too much for you. Um, I really, I'm going to get to some lighter subjects. Um, but for now, this is where I'm at. I'll see you next time.